Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bzilahicki. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe. Today, on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin today's program with the coverage of proposed New York legislation to end the sub-minimum wage that tipped workers in New York face. Then, we have a clip from the recent press conference on the proposed unemployment bridge program to support workers excluded from unemployment benefits. Later on, we have a Senate hearing on implementing updates to New York State's current climate law. And after that, Willie Terry reports on the presentation by Poor People's Campaign Representative and Albany's NAACP President Deborah Brown Jackson on the state of poverty in New York State. Finally, Capital Region Theater talk with Lee Strimbeck. But first, here are the headlines. Climate groups are calling on Governor Hochul to dedicate $10 billion to her executive state budget proposal to fund projects outlined in the 2019 Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. The Climate and Community Protection Fund would provide $10 billion to state do- to fund just transition programs and create union jobs that will aid in the development of renewable energy. They also want a climate change super fund to require companies involved with fossil fuels to pay $3 billion annually to clean up the damages they've caused. Statewide, the city of Schenectady has the fifth highest increase in homeschoolers leaving their public school district outside of New York City's five boroughs. The number of homeschoolers in the electric city almost tripled from 99 before the pandemic to 289 last school year. Rensselaer had the highest percentage of students transitioning to homeschooling among the capital region schools. The city of Albany is applying for a $3 million million to restore New York grant. This will help to fund the demolition of three Albany Housing Authority high-rises at the 1-2 Lincoln Square and convert it into a campus with the Hudson Valley Community College. The Republican Party will run a full slate of candidates for the city of Schenectady for the first time in a decade. Velma Ray, Brian Barnett, Jeff Moore, and Kevin Hammer will run for the council along mayoral along with alongside mayoral candidate Matt Nillingham to try to end full democratic control of Schenectady's government. The state comptroller reports that New York State's tax collections were $7.7 billion higher in the third quarter of 2022 than predicted. And New York State Senate Committee on Judicial Panel has rejected Governor Kathy Hochul's nomination to lead New York's highest court voting 10 to 9 against Justice Hector LaSalle. This five-hour hearing in which members grilled LaSalle on his record, judicial philosophy, and his past decisions, particularly on issues relating to labor and women's right to an abortion, on Thursday, determined to proceed Governor Hochul refused to rule out taking legal action. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. 
Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. On January 23rd, our revolution will be joining One Fair Wage for a bill kickoff event in Albany. To talk about this upcoming event and the issues behind it, we're now joined by Elisha Bacon from Mothers Out Front and Estefania Galvis of One Fair Wage. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Really uh, happy that we get to talk about this very important issue. Well, this bill is addressing workers in New York who really rely on tipping. Can you give us kind of an overview of the wages that are a reality for tipped workers? Well, uh, in New York, uh, we, I mean, we are working across the country, but in New York, we can see people making $12, $7, depending on where they're at, depending on who they're working with. But we also see people who have employers that have decided to already pay them uh, the regular minimum wage. So what we're talking about here is something that is called the sub-minimum wage. Um, it's a it's a wage that is lower uh, than any than the regular wage, which is surprising to people that this exists, right? Governor Cuomo uh, actually absolved everyone but service worker industry uh, workers from going up to a regular minimum wage. So we're fighting for service industry workers in the front and the back of the house to be able to be paid and have their tips. They need at least $15 an hour today, if possible, right? And their tips. There are studies that have been found that when workers are being paid for their time and labor, the businesses do thrive, the community thrives, there's a lot less turnaround. And um, I mean, ultimately, workers deserve their full wages, not just two thirds of their wages. Most of the tipped workers are women, are they not? The majority of tipped workers are BIPOC women uh, in the front of the house and BIPOC in general front and back of the house. So this is definitely like a targeted effort uh, to maintain poverty upon uh, the workers that really do provide for us every day. Elisha? There's still wage theft that goes on. And so people, especially people who are immigrants, they might even lose the tips that they have um, and really not have an avenue for um, fighting that because they feel that they might be at risk. And then obviously there's a connection to just the service industry tips and um, slave labor and our history of slavery in this country. Can we go a little bit more into that, the culture where it started of tipping, where it is now, and because of this history, should it go away? Should we keep it? Yeah, I definitely think that all workers should be paid a living wage, regardless of what industry that they work in. And we do see this kind of dichotomy where people push back and kind of want to make exceptions of certain groups of people. Um, we're seeing that right now between farmers and agricultural workers. Um, but no matter who you are, what sector you work in, you should be able to make a living wage. And I do think that the tipping industry should go away, especially since it was kind of started and evolved from a way to still pay predominantly 
Black people, especially those that had been freed, less money than their um, Caucasian counterparts. Restaurant workers have left the industry, so isn't that damaging the industry in its entirety? Absolutely. We are saying um, it is so important that if people want to have a post-pandemia thriving service industry, it is eminent that we end as a minimum wage. People will no longer come back to jobs that are not giving them a dignified living situation. And people experienced so much suffering through the pandemic that this is like, this is a, a no brainer. Like people deserve to be able to have one job, a stable job, and be able to have dignified lives that come when we do give people dignified wages, the wages that they're earning and that they are very much working for and not two thirds of the wage. They deserve their whole wage. Two thirds I mentioned because uh, slavery, during slavery, a, a slave was two thirds of a person. And that number through Jim Crow and the, the slave owner's house is a form of government that existed in slavery has moved into our current system. And so we're in a system of new Jim Crow. At the, and at the forefront of that is that we continue to have sub, sub situations of sub labor. That is not real. There is not such a thing as sub labor. All service industry is incredibly important is a high skill level and it is people's time and they deserve the wages that they work for. When we're promoting this issue, one fair wage, we're talking about community stabilization. We're talking about decreasing crime in our neighborhoods. This is all connected to people making a living wage. And so if we want to see an actual reduction in criminal activity, then we need to make sure that everyone has a living wage so they can have and afford the good things in life. So let's say we all agree that everyone should get a living wage. Who, where does that money come from? Is it on the consumer? Is it from the restaurant owners who have also been struggling during the pandemic? How do we implement this increase in payment? Well, I think that, you know, we, that's a question that we need to, I mean, I want to speak for one fair wage, but I think that there's a creative ways that we can find that to support business owners, which I understand some of them have a hard time necessarily paying, but why not subsidize the industry? Um, at the end of the day, we need to see it as an investment. And once we twist that mindset, then we can come together and talk about solutions, come up with to make sure that we can ensure people a living wage while also not overburdening our small business owners. Definitely, and this is why legislation is important. Ballot measures are important. The budgetary season is so important. This is such an important time to take action. At this moment in Albany, uh, we're starting to see moving the pieces of what is gonna come about the budget for this year. And in that budget, we can help and create programs to push so that we can support small businesses to make this change. We saw it happen through the pandemic and we can continue to do it. It's, it's a necessary ongoing support system. The, the state, the government has the money and needs to invest it in our communities. And this is us saying no more looking over us, no more exploitation. We are part of this system and this system, we pay our taxes, we do our due diligence to do our, our, our work and it is the state's 
responsibility to make sure to create the environment in which we are receiving back in our communities and in our pockets the money that we are putting into. And so the legislation right now in New York State is being moved. We want to put it through the budget so that there is a direct line and a direct process to be able to create uh, the supplement that the small businesses might need, right? And it is in the hands of the government and we need to push them to get it done. This is legislation you've put out, added, or given to the to the uh, assembly. Is that right? Yes. And when is this going to happen? And how can we find a way to support this effort? Absolutely. So on Monday, we're doing our big Albany launch. Uh, we are going to be the bills. They will get new numbers. Uh, this is a bill that actually has been in, in, in the move for now years. Jessica Gonzalez Rojas in the assembly is a great champion. We have we have a lot of signatures. We have a lot of support. Uh, we need every single person to call the representatives and say, I need you to support one fair wage, no more subminimum wage. We need you to take into your hands doing so, taking action. Next week on Monday, we're going to be in Albany having an action at noon that you can come join us at. Uh, you should find more information at our website, One Fair Wage. Uh, but also, we're going after the NRA because the NRA, the National Restaurant Association, next week, because we're tired of the lobbyists that are making the money of keeping us poor. And so the NRA, the National Restaurant Association, has a direct implication, not only in New York, but all over the country, on what a crime they're committing towards restaurant workers. And so we're taking into our own hands and we're gonna go protest them and we're gonna continue to dismantle the lobbyists of this, of this uh, company and make sure that people know that they also can call them and tell them. Well, thanks so much for being here. You've really enlightened us all. We really appreciate it. We've run out of time, you... but just in like 20 oh. seconds, can you tie it into our next story, which is about oh, right. the unemployment bridge program and how that it, how the two tie yeah, together? So it relates because all of the things that we're talking about is bringing money back into our communities. The unemployment uh, bridge program, it's something that worked during the pandemic and needs to be consistent and exist and continue to support the people that make our cities run. And those are our excluded workers. And we say excluded no more. One for Wage stands strong in solidarity and in the fight with them. And we are going to win this year for workers in New York State. Thank you so much, Elisha Bacon, Mothers Out Front, Estefania Galvez from One Fair Wage. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us, and please come out. <laughs> Good luck. If you believe in a living wage, then join them at noon at the L at the hour-long event in the Albany Room. So lunch will be provided. It's hosted by Our Revolutions, helping to build progressive movement in New York State. And next, fund excluded workers gave temporary protections to some people excluded from the COVID relief funds and unemployment support. The Unemployment Bridge Program would be a permanent safety net for those who don't qualify for unemployment. Here are some, here's some coverage from a recent press conference held by Columbia County Sanctuary Movement advocating for this program. No somos uno, no somos cien, somos millones, sentenos cien. No somos uno, no somos cien, somos millones, cuéntenos quién.
our fight for excluded workers is safe. During the pandemic, we have revealed that our safety net here in New York State is riddled with holes that have left out our black, brown, and immigrant workers here in the state. And so today we are fighting for inclusion in the safety net. Let's make some noise. Woo! What does that mean? We are proposing the Unemployment Bridge Program. And right now in the state budget, we are expecting a surplus in revenue. And so we know that this program, the Unemployment Bridge Program, it could be possible. Just like the Excluded Workers Fund was a really hard fight for our communities, but we won it and we can do so again. And this will be a program that would be permanent for our communities. This is would be an alternative to unemployment insurance here in the state. And this is a program that is essential for our workers. Woo! Workers now in the state, they have a labor right to access unemployment insurance. But because of some workers, because of their immigration status or the type of work that they do, they're excluded from this essential social safety net program. And that is not fair. Is it fair? No! And we demand to be excluded no more. These workers deserve to have access to this to a program that will ensure that them and their families will be able to recover during the next economic crisis, whether that be a crisis like the pandemic that hit the entire world and our state, or whether that be a crisis that hits their own family, someone loses a job because there was a, an employer that wanted to fire them unjustly. We need to make sure that these workers will be covered when the next crisis hits. It's not fair that we rely on them for their labor and then we turn our backs as soon as they lose their jobs. That is very unjustular. We need to make sure that we are including freelancers, uh, people who were formerly incarcerated. They work in prisons or in detention centers or in jails for pennies a day. Because once they are released, they are not uh, eligible for unemployment insurance. It's not fair because during when they were incarcerated, they were working and they're actually also paying taxes on those pennies that they're earning a day. And so we need to make sure that we are including them for once they are released, they will be included in our social safety net. They will be included and they will have something to sustain themselves and their families for once they are released. Undocumented immigrants, these immigrants uh, pay millions of dollars in taxes. They pay over $100 million in taxes to New York State alone. And that's obviously not including the taxes that freelancers, uh, recently released folks, and uh, cash earners also pay into the system. And then we also have cash earners. And essentially, these cash earners are excluded from unemployment insurance just because of the high barriers that they face um, in that system alone. And so we need to fight for, uh, for a, a 21st century unemployment insurance system that reflects labor force, the growing labor force that we're uh, facing here in New York State. When the unemployment insurance system uh, passed in the early Great Depression, even before it passed on a federal level, states, it was up to states to create their own unemployment insurance systems. And so we need to make sure that New York State is keeping up with the, its growing labor force and protecting all of the workers here in the state. And so we are fighting today for the Unemployment Bridge Program. And we have a great lineup of speakers who will speak to the importance uh, of this Unemployment Bridge Program and what it would mean for them, their constituents, and their Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Assemblymember Steve Raga representing District 30. That's Woodside, Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, Maspeth. Uh, happy to come here and, and, and support. They're trying to bring us back into the floor to vote, but we know that we got to be over here and support you guys first. Uh, it, this is the year. You just need to walk around the streets of Queens, the streets of New York City, the streets of our state, and look into the eyes and talk to all the wor everyday working New Yorkers to know that 
in 2023, together we need to pass the Unemployment Bridge Program. Yeah. Yeah. So together, we're gonna do this. This also gives the right for our, for all New Yorkers to make sure they can speak up in the workplace. You're gonna need that, especially coming out of the, this crisis. So that's an essential tool, an essential right that we already have. We just wanna make sure all New Yorkers are, are protected every day at all their jobs. So in 2023, when we're coming out of a crisis and we could get any, any other crisis the next day, we don't know what's coming down the road. We wanna make sure that our most vulnerable are protected and we're here working together for them. So together here up in Albany, you have uh, a partner in us and in 2023, we're passing this unemployment bridge program. Thank you guys. Good morning. My name is Angela Castillo-Riches. I am the manager of organizing and strategy for the New York Immigration Coalition, and I serve the capital region. I want to begin by saying that New York State, the city, downstate, and upstate would be nothing without our immigrant communities. These are communities that flourish our towns, including this beautiful city of Albany, make them vibrant and successful, and it's time that our legislators, elected officials, and Governor Hochul work to guarantee our immigrant communities are able to utilize the unique resources and opportunities that New York State prides itself on. We are here to say that the Unemployment Bridge Program is a necessity for our communities. Our labor unions think so. Our immigrant rights organizations know so. Our legislators who are present today know so. And most importantly, our immigrant communities know so. So what exactly is New York State waiting for? The Unemployment Bridge Program will finally include our undocumented, formerly incarcerated, and self-employed workers in the safety net that the rest of us have benefited from time and time again. Benefits that have saved families. Benefits that the communities mentioned play a role in paying for but are not able to access. Tell me, is that fair? No. Is that just? No. In this fight for excluded workers, we also must include coverage for all in this year's budget. Our excluded workers face some of the highest numbers of prolonged illness and suffering, most of them risking death, death, all because they cannot afford to visit a doctor. Yes, that appointment we all dread having to make, call an office for, right? That appointment is life changing. Including coverage for all in our budget this year would mean that more than 154,000 low-income, uninsured New Yorkers would be able to receive the medical care that they deserve. Both the Unemployment Bridge Program and coverage for all would ensure that the New York State workforce is strong, healthy, and taken care of. Just like workers take care of our communities in perilous times. This state, this beautiful, beautiful state, continue to step up where federal policies fall short and lead nationally on immigrant issues by enacting state-funded programs that protect our immigrant communities. Yeah. Thank you. My name is Reverend Joe Paparone. And as we've heard, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed the structure of society to be extremely precarious. Millions of workers who may have previously felt secure were forced out of work and they relied on various social safety net programs to support themselves and their families. But at the same time, many, for various reasons, like criminal records or their immigration status, have always been excluded from these programs. And the Excluded Workers Fund was a hard-fought struggle and resulted in a substantial lifeline to these workers who, in most cases, 
are the most vulnerable, the most exploited segments of our society. The exposure of the gaps and the exclusions of these programs leads us to this moment. It's an opportunity to correct historic wrongs and strengthen our entire society, not only in the midst of the present ongoing crisis, but for future crises and shocks that we will undoubtedly face. We need to fight for a society that doesn't leave anyone behind, that lifts from the bottom for the benefit of all. And the Unemployment Bridge Program is a step in the right direction. It would provide a critical support for the most precarious workers in our communities. They are a part of our class, the working class, and their labor is as valuable and deserving of protection as any other. Labor organizer Jen Baker told us, when we raise up that famous labor anthem, that song Solidarity Forever, we've got to fight to give it meaning. And that word solidarity among the working class, it doesn't stop based on someone's immigration status. It doesn't stop just because they do freelance work. It doesn't stop just because they've got a criminal record. We are calling on all members of the working class and the politicians who purport to represent them. Don't leave anyone behind. Thank you. The workers united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. And we will continue to report on this campaign and others. Well, this campaign, the Unemployment Bridge Program, you can find the full video of the press conference on Columbia County Sanctuary Movement's Facebook page. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, a great way to support this program is by telling a friend, sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The New York State Senate held a hearing on January 19th on how the state's climate law should be updated following the release of a scooping plan by the Climate Action Council. Here we hear from three speakers, Mario Salinito, head of the N. New York State AFL-CIO, Cornell Professor Bob Haworth, and Environmental Justice Attorney Raya Salter. This reports by Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. On January 19th, the New York State Senate held a day-long hearing on what the state legislature should do with the climate scope and plan that the Hochul administration has drafted three and a half years after the state's CLCPA climate law was enacted. Even though this process actually began back in 2009, the scope and plan now goes through several more years of additional review by the Hochul administration with various proceedings with the State Department of Environmental Conservation and the Public Service Commission, as well as updating the state energy master plan. A big question is what role would the New York State legislature decide to play on climate policy? In addition, how will the state raise the 10 to $30 billion a year needed to finance climate change? 
And will they require the polluters to pay for it? Governor Hochul has proposed a cap and trade program, which in the past has not been very successful in reducing emissions. With the Democrats in complete control of both houses of the legislature and the governor's office, Senate Republicans used the opportunity as an infrequent opportunity. They called to delay action on climate and to protect the fossil fuel companies. While the Republicans hammered on the issue of energy reliability and the cost of the transition to renewable energy, Democrats and climate activists responded that the failure to act would cost New York residents far more money in health costs from continued air pollution and from the damages caused by increasing extreme weather. They also noted that investing in renewable energy would create tens of thousands of new good-paying jobs and give some hope of a decent life for future generations. In this segment, we hear from three speakers, each a member of the Climate Action Council. Mario Salento, head of the New York State AFL-CIO, will speak first, followed by Cornell Professor Bob Howarth, and then environmental justice attorney Rhea Salter. I just to be clear, labor's unequivocal goal here and has been is to combat climate change while protecting the, the needs and the concerns and the rights uh, of working men and women, uh, creating and protecting good jobs. That has to be our priority. And particularly when we talk about new jobs, they should be union jobs, ensuring the, uh, the highest quality of work and skill of those workers, a timely completion of projects, safer workplaces, and of course, middle class wages and benefits. So how do we achieve this? Uh, we need to amend the CLCPA to include labor standards, uh, prevailing rate and PLAs on, on construction, labor peace agreements for the supply chain, operations, maintenance, repair, uh, preferences, of course, for Buy New York and Buy American. And in addition, these, these positions must be open, we feel, to all New Yorkers, uh, including and especially from disadvantaged communities. Um, in terms of protecting current workers, uh, we know there's projected job loss. And we know we can talk about job creation. That's sort of intangible. We know there's going to be jobs. We're not really exactly sure how much they're going to pay and what they're going to be. There are thousands of men and women who are working at their jobs, knowing that in three or five or seven years from now, their jobs are no, go no longer going to uh, exist. They're trying to figure out, again, as we're here today, how they're going to support themselves and their families in that period of time. So we need to minimize job loss. I think we could all agree on, on that. And we can do that in a few ways. We need to establish uh, alternative compliance for energy intensive and trade exposed industries and protect good union manufacturing and smelting and production jobs. Um, cap and invest is a way to protect those industries. And the goal should be reasonable and attainable emission reductions and not just shuttering industries. Uh, we don't uh, also, we don't want to catalog, uh, catalyze leakage and send plants to jurisdictions with lesser environmental and labor standards because I think we'd all agree that would be counterproductive. We must maintain reliability. Current generating facilities should not be phased out until clean energy generation is ready to replace capacity. For those who, workers whose jobs are going to be eliminated, we should hope and uh, put forth policy that promptly rehires them with with the same or better pay, benefits, and working conditions, the opportunity to join a union. Uh, we need to ensure that workers are properly trained, and training is a big part of this if we're going to transition properly here. It should happen as early as possible. My name is Robert Howard. The scoping plan shows that we can meet the goals of the CLCPA, the climate law, and that we can do so in a way that is affordable and will benefit all New Yorkers. 
state will be stronger as the plan is implemented, the health and well-being of our citizens improve, economic uncertainties and vulnerabilities will be reduced, energy security will be enhanced. The Climate Action Council plan is also clear that the top priorities are to continue to move towards wind, solar, and hydro as our sources of electricity, to move rapidly towards beneficial electrification as the major source of heating and cooling in our homes and commercial buildings, and to move rapidly towards beneficial electrification in our personal and commercial vehicles. Climate change is real, it's immediate, it's urgent, and we in New York should do all that we can to move to address it. In New York, the building sector is the number one source of emissions by far, and so to meet the goals of the CLCPA, we need to address the the use of fossil fuels in our building. The scoping plan is very, very clear on that. The future of energy use must be based on electrification of heating and cooking and not the continued use of fossil natural gas, fuel oil, and propane. The scoping plan is also quite clear on the future of the fossil natural gas pipeline distribution system. The plan says that we will reduce our use of, of natural gas in the state by a third within the next seven years, and by well over half, almost 60%, just 12 years from now, by 2035. That means, in the interest of safety and the economic viability of uh, the average person in the state, we need to have an organized downsizing of the gas pipeline system, and we need to start planning for that urgently. I think the plan is great overall. There are a few things which I think I'd like to see us move more rapidly on. One of them is that in our draft uh, plan from a year ago, we called for all electrification in new home buildings as of just one year from now. We've backed off of that uh, somewhat and for commercial buildings. And I would like to see the, the Senate and Assembly uh, restore the dates which we had urged in our original draft plan from a year ago. Second, the current law in the state uh, still requires utilities to connect new homes and new buildings to gas infrastructure if they're within 100 foot of a main. That's clearly antithetical to the intent of the CLCPA, and I believe that should be uh, changed legislatively. And third, the utilities, many of the utilities across the, the state, including mine, NYSEG, continue to provide rebates and incentives for the use of uh, fossil natural gas in homes, for new furnaces, for water heaters, for uh, clothes dryers, and that again is antithetical to the uh, CLCPA and I believe should be acted on administratively. My name is Raya Salter. What I want to get across is that the CLCPA, our climate law, paired with the Climate Action Council scoping plan, provides a comprehensive plan for the state's just transition. The next step is to see them fully implemented to the letter of the law. This means sunsetting polluting facilities, moving away from combustion, while creating economic opportunity, family-sustaining jobs, and leaving no worker or community behind. To do this, we must first and foremost ensure that the Department of Environmental Conservation, working with other agencies, enforce the CLCPA's greenhouse gas emissions reductions limits as required by law. This is one way that the scoping plan fits into the CLCPA framework. The CLCPA requires that the DEC make and enforce emissions reductions rules, and they must reflect the findings of the scoping plan, encourage early action, be enforceable by the DEC, and importantly, ensure there is no disproportionate burden placed on disadvantaged communities, and prioritize emissions and co-pollutant reductions in disadvantaged communities. Let this guide be your compass to achieving the goals of the CLCPA and achieving 
the goals of the scoping plan. In doing so, please do not lose focus on what we must do. Move ahead with a just transition as described in the scoping plan. I was a member of the council's gas transition subgroup and worked on the scoping plan's vision to retire fossil fuel plants and decarbonize the building sector. It includes a blueprint for the retirement of New York City's most polluting fossil fuel plants by 2030. It also calls for the creation of an Office of Just Fit Transition and a Worker Support and Assurance Fund. These actions should be taken immediately. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying and sickened every year by these plants. Lawmakers must be vigilant against false solutions that do nothing but provide the fossil fuel industry with tools to extend their business far into the future. The CLCPA should ultimately prohibit the use of most so-called alternative fuels like renewable natural gas but the plan leaves the door open, you should close it. Likewise, so-called um, advanced nuclear is a dangerous distraction. With regards to cap and invest, we must make polluters pay, not allow them to pay to pollute. The scoping plan requires that cap and invest must address environmental justice concern. The devil will be in the details. But no cap and invest scheme can be effective without simultaneous action to close the polluting facilities that are harming frontline communities the most. Of course, any plan that places a disproportionate burden onto disadvantaged communities will not be compliant with the CLCPA. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We will continue, Hudson Mohawk Magazine will continue to report on the New York CLCPA and climate change led by Mark Dunley. On Martin Luther King's birthday, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry recorded the presentation given by Poor People's Campaign Representative and Albany NAACP President Deborah Brown Johnson. Insurance. 
Homelessness has reached its highest level since the Great Depression. Even before the pandemic, 54% of low-income households spent more than half their incomes on rent. As devastating as the pandemic was on the world, it served to shine a light on the issues impacting, impacting the daily life of poor, low-income, black and brown people. In a nation as rich as America, black, brown, and poor people died dis disproportionately exposed to the virus, displaced from their homes, suffered food insecurity, and were impacted by healthcare inadequacies, That's due right. in part to racism, classism, and a total disregard for the needs of all people. We couldn't afford to stay home and live, so many worked and died, working in service and healthcare jobs that either lacked or offered inadequate healthcare for the employees. We worked in service of others to the detriment of ourselves. What is described as the ultra-rich New Yorkers, those with wealth over $30 million, hold a staggering $6.7 trillion in wealth. Meanwhile, 8.6 million New Yorkers are poor and low income. New Yorkers must become alarmed by the disparity of the experiences, exper experiences across this beautiful mosaic of diversity that make this state and the world great. The poor people state of the state report indicated Black and non-Hispanic women were five times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than white, non-Hispanic women. Communities of color were disproportionately impacted by medical debt. 41% of residents in communities of color had medical debt in collections, compared to 14% of residents in white communities in that county. In Monroe County, the rate is 26% in counties of color versus 7% in white communities. And in Albany County, 26% versus 10% for communities of color and white communities, respectively. In New York, black people are eight times more likely to be incarcerated and Latinx people are three times more likely to be incarcerated than white people. In 2021, the median household, household income for black and Latinx, Latinx households in New York State was 54,443 and 55,245 respectively, compared to 83,0. 392 for white households, and 81,411 for Asian households. This discrepancy was more pronounced in New York City, where median income for black, Latinx, and Asian households was 52,197, 48,316, and 72,785, compared to 97,000 170 for a white household. At the end of his life, Dr. King was organizing a poor people's campaign 
uniting poor people across all races and ge geographies to demand what he called a revolution of values, a fundamental restructuring of society to meet the needs of the poor and dispossessed. The crisis he identified of racism, poverty, and militarism are in fact worse today than they were in 1968. Along with our partners around the state and nation, we are working to revive that vision and build unity and leadership among the poor to win the policies we need. We are here today to call attention to the plight of the poor black and brown people and to demand that Governor Hochul listen to the people directly impacted by low poor wages, absent or inadequate housing, food insecurity, non-existent, unequal or inadequate health care, environmental hazards and poisons, social injustices, voter suppression, and racism. Dr. King said in his prolific I Have a Dream speech, as long as there is poverty in this world, no man can be totally rich, even if he has a billion dollars. We demand policies that work for all New Yorkers. Thank you. It's been one of my dreams that we would come together and realize our common problems and uh, powerful poor people will really mean having the ability, the togetherness, the assertiveness, and the aggressiveness to make the power structure of this nation say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. And it is my hope that we will get together and be together and really stand up to gain power for poor people. Somebody's hurting my brother and he's gone on far too long. Oh, it's gone on far too long. Yes, it's gone on far too long. Oh yeah, he's gone on. Party love. 
That was the last segment from Willie Terry's coverage from the recent Poor People's Campaign State of the State Address. You can find the other segments on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And now we're joined with Lee Strembeck, who's director, actress, theater educator, and, uh, well, good friend of uh, Sanctuary for Independent Media. Hi, Lee. How are you? Hi there. Good. How are you? Really nice to see you. Gosh, you were at Russell Sage for um, how long? Ten years. Ah, wonderful. You must have had some wonderful experiences there with uh, some of your students. I did. And uh, one of the things I liked the most about the theater we created there was when we did devised theater pieces, which are written by the students. And one of them was um, Mirror, Mirror, which was all of the students talking about uh, body image, the pressure women feel in this country to be perfect, um, eating disorder issues, body dysmorphia, um, and all of the, everything was written by the students. And then we did after that, we did one called I'm Not a Feminist, But Uh, because that's a phrase I heard a lot from the students. I'm not a feminist, but, and so I wanted to investigate that with the students to see what they thought feminism means uh, and whether or not they identified as feminists. And then of course, understanding what the the real definition of feminism is, which is uh, equity. (laughs) It's just equity. Well, theater has changed a lot in the capital region, especially over the last five or six years. We don't get too many social employees Applications in our theater productions, unless unless I've missed something. What have you What have you seen lately that you think is uh, remarkable? Well, I I went down to the city recent uh, in December and saw a bunch of things. And one of the plays that I saw down there was Top Dog Underdog by Suzanne Laurie Parks. And uh, the Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York is doing that play. Uh, coming up in March 2nd through the 12th. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so we have a play on on Broadway and that and that production on Broadway, that's that's the second time I've seen Top Dog Underdog, um, directed by Kenny Leon, who is one of the best uh, directors working in America, I think. Um, but now we're going to have our own production up here. Well, uh, Jean Rame is... Uh really great as a director. So it'll be yeah. nice to see his, that'll be a capital rep, won't it? Yeah, it'll be in the capital rep space. In and, March. You know, ha- have you seen a production of it? I haven't, no. So it's about two brothers. One is named Lincoln and one is named Booth. Oh, that's right. Yes, now I know it. I haven't and seen it, but I know black. of it. And, and, the, and the brother Lincoln works as a white-faced Lincoln impersonator. <laughs> in, in, in a um what's it called in a uh you know like an arcade kind of situation and then his brother a carnival booth, thing yeah and his brother booth is a three card monty guy who's on hard times and it all takes place in this room between the two of them it's i mean i love her writing um and uh i'm gonna go see the one up here uh it it, it, it the depth of her writing and the way she can write metaphorically about these really um, serious issues that plague our country is is extraordinary. So that's Who's, that's something I'm, I've seen, and I'm excited about the next production coming up of it. Who's the writer? Suzanne Laurie Parks. Okay, okay, real good. Thanks. And that's yeah, in March. Oh, that we've got to catch. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Um, and then uh, the Cap Capital Rep has a new play coming up called. Um, Oh, seek the secret hour, which is which is a world premiere. Um, 
about secrets in a married couple. It's not a play, I know, because it's world premiere. Yay. Uh, yeah, so that's for Oh, that's nice. We're doing it here. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to see one at Coho's a meta musical. And Coho's Music Hall has just a whole schedule of stuff happening. But otherwise, uh, as I looked around, theater gets a little quiet up here this time of year. Um, there, there's a lot of good music. Of course, we have Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many good things there. Hudson Hall um, in Hudson has a jazz fest coming up in, I think it's a weekend in February. They have some really remarkable names coming. Um, but but the theater gets a little quiet in the middle of the winter. And I think it's partly because who knows, how can you, you know, the, the weather prevents travel sometimes. So. Yeah, I was going to ask, I thought I somebody recently told me that also restaurants are quieter at the beginning of the year because people spent so much money in yes. December. Uh, yeah. But it also seems like indoor warm event. Why wouldn't the wintertime be a great time for indoor events? So that's interesting. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, I think it, 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 during the holidays, people spend a lot of time together. They spend a lot of money. And then I think everybody kind, kind of goes to ground a little bit. But I was thinking be, before meeting with you guys today about, you know, that that basic that fundamental question, why go to live theater at all? And 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 for me, one of the things I love is when I'm seeing a show and something happens on stage and then you check you find yourself checking around to see if everybody saw what you just saw. Gets it. Yeah, did they get it? Or were yeah. you laughing? And sometimes it's so amazing you have to look and see is, is someone else laughing with you. And it's something about breathing yeah. at the same time as a whole community, which is really great. During COVID, it's a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit different. But it is that idea of, you know, you you sort of having your humanity reinforced by the fact that we're all together witnessing the same thing in the same moment as it's happening. And it wasn't edited and it wasn't made before, you know. Um, although I love going to films uh, live, you know, in a real theater as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's one yeah, of my I think the, in those arguments for going to theater when I talk to you. <laughs> well, one of the victims of of COVID had been theater for a while, and I think now I think we're doing okay. Um, I don't know if we have to worry so much now. Um, I mean, people do mask up when they feel comfortable masking up, or when they feel vulnerable. So I think the complication is is that for the show for for places like the rep that have equity union actors, the union is requiring certain things of of the actors and of the the crew and therefore of the audience to protect their union members. Fair enough. And one of the things that is still happening that people may not be aware of is COVID is still running through casts and and shutting down shows. One person gets it. You know, productions of A Christmas Carol haven't been able to complete their whole run. And the good news is for the people who are vaccinated, you know, people aren't dying of it. It's but it but it is still a very serious illness. Uh, and that's all an argument for voluntarily wearing masks when you're sitting in an audience just to protect yourself, uh, protect the actors on stage. Um, and I've sort of gotten used to it. At first, I felt very uncomfortable, like, you know, just just uncomfortable it just felt hot and sweaty and and now i'm just so used to pulling it on and off when i'm when i'm in a crowded place and i think there's a pretty good argument this winter for continuing to mask up at the theater yeah well i've been doing it and it's it's funny because all of a sudden i realize i'm driving the car and i'm alone in the car and my mask <laughs> is still on right that's what happens 
Well, it's wonderful to have you come back and we'll see you next month. I hope you'll come by and, and give us another rundown of what's what really can can happen. Um, I know there's some other theaters, smaller theater groups that are working around. Do you have any news on any of those? What's happening with them? Like, uh, well, I know in the summer we're going to have Will Kemp, payer, Will Kemp players yes. do yes. do some nice Shakespeare in the park. Yes, and hopefully we'll have uh, park uh, free Shakespeare in the park in Saratoga as well as in Pittsfield. So there will oh, be right. three places this summer. Uh, the Will Kemp players in the Saratoga and Pittsfield, where you'll be able to see free Shakespeare, um, which uh, it, I think is fantastic. It's so much fun with yeah. a picnic and and good yeah. friends and, and, and kids lots. running around, you know, and dogs and and it's you know it's, it's a great way to see theater where you don't feel like you're at you know you have to behave. You can just <laughs> you catch some of the show, you miss some of the show. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Well, thanks so much for for stopping in, and we'll see you, uh, if not before, certainly next month. Definitely. My my pleasure. Nice to see you. Have a good night. Take care. Thanks again. And that's our show. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Basilahiki. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe, and our engineer is Sinabasilahiki. Only sometimes we like to thank our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Contributors to today's program are Mark Dudley, Willie Terry, well, gosh, Sina and Andrea, and uh, that's it. Um, And we want to hear from you. We do want to hear from you. So you can find us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. And at mediasanctuary.org. But you can send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. So tune in every weekday at 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. And you'll hear your local news or stream us on Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website. And on your favorite podcast platform. So we appreciate you listening until next time. Thanks for tuning in.